the staff at Nine Marks know that we have been praying for y'all, and we are very grateful for your partnership in the gospel. And personally, it is a, it's a joy to be here with you all. My greatest joy uh, of the job as executive director is the rare uh, opportunities I get like this to kind of leave the Nine Marks Pentagon, so to speak, there in Washington, D.C., and come out to the front lines and see uh, our dear friends, but our dear partners who are literally in the trenches fighting uh, that great commission uh, to serve the Lord and to build healthy churches. And it's just been super encouraging to be with you all this morning uh, to see the Lord working here in this region. I don't know the Pacific Northwest very well. Uh, I think I've, I was here three hours in an afternoon back in uh, college for a quick trip through Seattle. That's, that doesn't really count, though technically I've been here. Uh, but uh, I had the joy of being in Portland, Oregon last month uh, and then Seattle this month. So the Lord's given me a double blessing of, as Simona taught me, the best coast. So uh, I'm grateful to be here and to uh, hopefully encourage you all. I have one simple goal tonight, uh, to encourage you with a biblical vision of the church. Now I want to do connect that a little bit to what uh, Nine Marks is doing, our history, what we do, why it's important. And I do want to finish uh, very practically with some application, mainly just prayer. But overall, the main thing I want you all to leave with tonight is, Lord willing, uh, an encouragement uh, through a biblical vision of the church. And I want to start where we just finished praying with Jesus' last words, the Great Commission. So these are the last words of Jesus before he rises up to heaven to sit at the right hand of God the Father and rule and reign over all of the universe. And what does he say? I'm going to give you, you have two questions, but uh, let me read the text. I'm going to ask your questions and you get to answer. It'll be a little interactive here. But this is Jesus' last words in Matthew 28, verse 18, 19, and 20. I'll read. You're welcome to read along. But uh, let me read these for, for y'all. Jesus says, well, Matthew says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Okay, question number one, and this is interactive. Verse 18, where does Jesus start? What's his grounds for saying what he says? It's right there in verse 18. If you raise your hand or call out, what's his grounds? Authority, all authority, that's right. So in many ways, to understand a biblical vision of the church, we kind of got to start right there with a biblical understanding of authority. Uh, I want to go to someone else's last words who uh, pointed to Jesus to think about authority with y'all. We're going to go to David's last words. Uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 23, you're welcome to turn there, or I'm also going to read it, but 2 Samuel chapter 23, these are King David's last words. Uh, and so let me read these, and um, I hope from this we'll see a good picture of authority and why it's important for a biblical vision of the church. Verse 23, 2 Samuel, I'm sorry, chapter 23, verse 1 of 2 Samuel. Now these are the last words of David, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. 
all right, that's just one verse. That's quite a buildup. This must be pretty important. This guy is the sweet psalmist, the anointed, the oracle. Okay, what's he going to say? Verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His words is on my tongue. Okay, verse 3. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me. Okay, here it is. So two and a half verses just to frame what these words are. Okay, last words are important. These must be very important. What is David going to say? Here it is. Right there in verse 3, he says, When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Beloved, authority rightly exercised in the home, in governments, in the workplace, in the church, is one of, if not the most beautiful picture of who God is. Good authority shows the image of God like nothing else. Just think of the good coach that all of our kids want to be with, or or the good school teacher that everyone hopes they get into his or her class, or, or the good father who just, when you see his daughter grab her hand as he takes her out on a, on a date, is getting a picture of God as he holds her hand and carries her into the ice cream parlor. Or think of the good husband who loves and serves his wife, who provides and protects and loves and takes out the trash. But we see that good authority is a beautiful picture of who God is. And authority abused is one of the most heinous offenses against God because it lies about who God is. This goes right to the very beginning in Genesis 1 where the author himself speaks all of creation into into being. And then in Genesis 2, he makes us in his image. The author then gives us authority to rule and reign over all of his creation. And that is the most intimate picture of heaven and of God as we see him face to face and walk with him and exercise authority over what the author has given us. But then we have Genesis 3, right? Where that authority is abused. And rather than wanting to image the author, we decide that we care more about our own image. We want to be king. And the rest of the story, line of the Bible, is God working to restore his image through right authority. Authority is very important to God. It's at the heart of who he is and what he does. And it's done primarily through the church. This picture of biblical authority, it's the opening scene of the Bible. And we see it here in David's last words, and we see it in Jesus' last words in the Great Commission. So that's question one, authority, okay? So that's the first snapshot we need to have here as we're painting this biblical vision of the church. Okay, snapshot two, what does Jesus tell them to do? It's right there in verse 19 and 20. Jesus tells them to do something based upon this authority. He tells them to do what? Go and make disciples. And how do you make disciples? Just some of the things? teach them to obey everything 
I have commanded, and baptizing them in the name of the, Son, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay, how do you do that? How do you teach them to obey everything that Jesus has commanded? Well, the good news is we had the book of Acts that follows right after this great commission. And we see how his disciples interpreted that uh, commission. What did they do? Well, the answer in short is the church. The church is the means by which we baptize and make disciples and teach them to obey everything that Jesus has commanded. And it's, it's connected to authority, right? So what do the apostles do? They go and they find men who are using their authority well in, in their homes and their marriages, and they say, hey, you men who are providing, protecting, loving, and serving those under your authority, your, your children, your family, your wives, come and be elders or pastors, pastors or bishops or shepherds, all synonymous in the New Testament with those ideas. But you pastor the church, come and work together and raise up other leaders, other elders, and then send those elders out to plant churches. And then, you know, this is the Paul's letters to Timothy, right? And then equip them to be prepared to endure the hardship, that word suffering, the hardship of the gospel ministry. That's what you called them to equip them to. Encourage them in that by preaching and teaching the word and by planting churches. So what happens? The gospel spreads from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and beyond. That great commission is fulfilled as good authority is rightly identified and leaders are equipped and encouraged and brought together, trained, and then sent out to take the gospel through churches. Brothers and sisters, there is no greater way to make disciples than biblical, healthy, vibrant churches. Assemblies, that's all that word in Greek means. To, uh, the ecclesia is just the assembly. Those who assemble, just like this, gathering. In some ways, this is the first principle or the main kind of driving hypothesis of nine marks, that building healthy churches is the best way to fulfill the Great Commission. We believe it's biblical and it's fruitful for making disciples. The local church is the mission's base for the Great Commission and the Great Commandment. It is the focal point for displaying God's glory to the nations. Okay, that's, that's the big picture beginning here. Abstract biblical principles that are behind, I think, this biblical vision of the church and kind of what I hope drive nine marks. Let me now kind of get in the elevator. Let's go down to the lobby level of everyday life and give you some nitty-gritty uh, snapshots, some details, some background, some examples here to kind of paint out this picture, Lord willing, of a biblical vision of the church. And I'll just start with a brief little history of nine marks. Uh, I don't want to presume that y'all know the history, but I also don't want to spend too much time because there's so much good things to talk about. So let me give a brief history of nine marks and what those are. I won't ask you what the nine marks are. No quiz on that. Um, but uh, I do want you to know them, and then we'll uh, continue looking at Scripture to think about what this biblical vision is of the church and why it's important for us. So the nine marks, where did they show up? Well, they actually showed up back in 1991 when Mark Dever, Mark Dever is the, currently the pastor of Capitol Baptist Church um, and uh, president of Nine Marks, but he was working on his PhD in Cambridge, England. Mark never intended to be a pastor. He thought he was going to be a professor, so that's why he was getting a PhD, and he was going to come back and teach at a seminary. But uh, he had gone to seminary in Boston, Gordon-Conwell, and while he was there, uh, he planted a church, and that church actually had elders. It was a healthy church. Baptist Church right there on the, um, on the town square uh, near Gordon-Conwell, and they were looking for a new kind of full-time senior pastor, preaching pastor, 
And so they wrote Mark Dever, and they said, what should we do? How should we find a, I mean, how should we find our new pastor? And he said, he wrote them back a little letter on a dot matrix printer. We actually still have the letter. It's pretty cool. But uh, he wrote it back. He said, well, sadly, you can't go to your local Baptist association because they're not going to put a man in, the, in the, your pulpit who preaches the gospel. They've lost the gospel. He said, so what you need to do is you need to find a man, an elder, a pastor, who's, qual- who's kind of characterized by these nine things. And then he wrote the nine marks. Number one, you need a pastor who's committed to expositional preaching. That's mark number one, right? Where the expositional preaching is just the main point of his sermon is the main point of the text that he's preaching, right? And that means, mark number two, that it will be grounded in, in biblical theology, sound doctrine, and it'll be grounded in, uh, mark number three, the gospel, right? So you see the first three marks, right? Expositional preaching grounded in sound doctrine and the gospel. They're all word-centered, right? Because God always creates, Genesis 1, God always saves, John 1, through his word. So you want a man who is committed to the word of God. So those are the first three marks. And then that means, though, as he's preaching and teaching, as he's building the church, you need a biblical understanding of conversion. What is your role, man or woman, or member of the church in conversion? And what is God's role? Our job is to call people to repent and believe. It's up to God to actually convert them. That's God's job, not ours. And that's work number four. So that means you need to have a bar number five, a biblical understanding of evangelism. How should we, not just personally, but corporately as a church, practice evangelism? Because you look, when you talk about the Great Commission and witnessing, it's usually y'all, not you. It's all in the Greek, it's plural. Good Texas word, y'all, you all. God has cared about the corporate nature of our witness. That's a lot more common in the New Testament and Old Testament than personal individual evangelism, though I am all for personal evangelists. It's a both and. Uh, but that means the mark number six. If you have evangelism, you will then have, hopefully, converts, right? Well, what do you do with them? You need a biblical understanding of membership, right? That's mark number six. And, of course, with that comes uh, mark seven and eight, both uh, corrective discipline, church discipline, and then mark number eight, uh, kind of a commitment to discipleship and growth. That's the formative culture of discipling and discipline. And then mark number nine, finally, biblical leadership. You need elders and deacons to help lead the body, the assembly, the congregation, the church. Like a good body, it must have a a head and a neck that helps kind of guide and think things through. So three years later, Mark ended up not becoming a uh, professor. He ended up becoming a pastor of Capitol Baptist Church in 1994, and that church had a monthly newsletter, and the pastor was supposed to write one of the main articles, so he had to write a monthly article, and he, uh, he said, well, can I just write nine articles on these nine Marks? And the church administrator was like, great, that's almost like a whole year of material. So he was happy. So Mark wrote over nine months, he wrote nine articles on these nine marks. Uh, the church administrator said, this is really good. He turned it into a self-published booklet that, that Crossway, a publisher, found. And they said, hey, we want you to turn a, this into a book. And Mark said, well, I don't write books. I, I write sermons. But if you want, I'll preach nine sermons on these nine marks, and I'll give you my sermon manuscripts, and you all can turn them into a book. So... Uh, so that's what Mark did. Ironically, I love this, Mark Dever's first topical sermon was on expositional preaching. Just <laughs> sweet, sweet irony. Uh, but that was in 1997. And then in 1998, uh, Mark, Mark, Mark does four things. He's a pastor, he evangelizes, he disciples, and he trains men in the ministry. And he had been uh, evangelizing his next-door neighbor, who uh, was a, a, a non-Christian, very wealthy businessman but actually studied religion at Yale and appreciated the moral benefits of religion. 
And uh, he had seen, Capitol Hill had been basically a dumpster fire uh, on the neighborhood. It had a bad stench, it had a bad reputation. It was not a good witness. Even to just the property was falling apart. But over the last four years, this neighborhood had seen it kind of change from literally just becoming pretty, like taking care of the grounds, but also you know, serving in the schools, doing community stuff. And he had just, as a non-Christian, he had been impressed by the change that he saw. And he said, hey, Mark, you guys need to go help other churches do what you've done here because this is really benefiting Capitol Hill. Again, just, he just saw the, the moral benefits to the church. And he said, so I'll give you $100,000 for three years if you can find a man to start a ministry that does this. So nine marks actually started in 1998 when a non-Christian neighbor, just through the evangelistic kind of witness of the Capitol Hill Baptist Church, funded uh, Matt Schmucker to uh, start the ministry. And so that's how nine marks started in 1998. And ever since that first January 1998, when, when we officially kind of started as Nine Marks, the vision has remained the same. Churches that reflect the character of God. So that's what we want to see. So if I were to put up a picture of what we want to see, the in-game scenario, like, okay, once we get to this picture, we're done. We can shut down. It's just that. Churches that radiate God's character, that put his love, his purity, his unity on display. That's what we want to see. And so our mission, kind of how we get there then, is to equip church leaders with a biblical vision and practical resources for displaying God's glory uh, through healthy churches. We summarize that in our tagline, building healthy churches. That's kind of what we do. We do that largely through the resources we create and the events that we host. And then in God, we pray for his blessing and abundance on those things. We believe that the best model for building a church is biblical faithfulness. And these nine marks loosely not exhaustively capture the key elements that God prescribes in his word for building healthy churches. So it's not just like a nine-step program. No, it's, these, it's not the nine marks even, it's just nine marks. There's many marks of a healthy church, but we're just simply seeking to lay a biblical model of the church. The, the technical term is a biblical ecclesiology. In one sense, as an ecclesiology, we're just like, we're just like plumbers at nine marks. We're just trying to lay the necessary plumbing to structure and build the church according to God's plan. And as you know, plumbing, it's not something that's very glamorous, but it's really important because just think, we just started renovating our bathroom last week at my house. Got a nice old fixer-upper. You know, my wife is just thinking about all the fixtures and the really nice tile and the, and the, and the pedestal that she wants, right? But if we don't get the plumbing right, I promise you that bathroom, whether it be in one month or in a couple years, will be a mess, a stinky mess, you know, because plumbing is really important. And we'll have to be ripping out that real nice new tile. Well, it's just subway tile from Lowe's. But, you know, that, that tile from, and that nice vanity that she wants if we don't get the plumbing right. But even, even more than plumbing, the church, according to the Bible, is to be the display of God's glory here on planet Earth. So, friends, the church will not save you. It is not the gospel. The gospel is that diamond of salvation, right? But if the gospel is the diamond, the church is like that, that beautiful diamond ring, those precious metal prongs that, that kind of protect the diamond and, and elevate it and put it on display. So you see, in essence, the gospel produces a gospel order, a body, right? The gospel produces the church, and that gospel order, that church, that body, then in turn protects and promotes and displays the gospel. So if you overlook the church, what happens? Well, you can watch the gospel's work quickly get engulfed by enemy fire, by Satan, 
because the gospel work needs the supply lines and the shelter that churches built upon the rock of Scripture provide. So Nymarks, therefore, works to train and equip church leaders, pastors, and members with a biblical understanding of the church, and then what it means to pastor one if they're a leader, or to just be a faithful, fruitful member if they're part of that body. And friends, this has huge implications for the Great Commission. I mean, that was my testament. I was born and raised in Houston, Texas, uh, non-Christian home. I'm 44 years old. Me and my twin brother, we had an idyllic childhood. Uh, both parents were professionals. We went to the best school, got everything we want as a family just through our reason and hard work. Had no reason to doubt our reason. We went to the Unitarian Church. That kind of faith, just affir- that Unitarian Church just affirmed kind of our rationalism and our individualism. And honestly, growing up in Texas and Houston, I thought Christians were at best hypocrites. Uh, because I went to the big Young Life events, and all my friends did, it was kind of the social thing. I went on the big Baptist ski trip to Breckenridge, Colorado, and you know what? Their lives looked no different than mine. And in some ways, I wanted to get into Georgetown University and make a lot of money, so I was like more disciplined and moral than my Christian friends, because I was just working hard to get into a good college and make a lot of money. And then in high school, I became enamored with philosophy and started reading these rationalist philosophers, and Every time I'd read the Houston Chronicle and see the word Southern Baptist or evangelical leader, it was usually with the word financial extortion or sexual immorality underneath it. And I thought, okay, Christians just aren't hypocrites. They're downright delusional, destructive, and dangerous. And I got into that really good school that I wanted to go to, and I moved to Washington, D.C. in 1993, and I actually started a philosophy club. uh, And I was an evangelist before I was a Christian because I would lead people to atheism uh, because I thought, this is dangerous. You know, they need to be freed from this delusion. But in the severe mercies of God, that same year that I and my twin brother moved to Washington, D.C. to go to university, things fell apart in our family. So my dad, who was that very fit, he gave us an idyllic childhood, wonderful father, but he had a, uh, he was, lost his law practice uh, through some corruption. It's like a movie. And he uh, went bankrupt. And then he had a mental breakdown in 1994 that he still never recovered from. So we've been taking care of him since 1994. Um, and then, because he didn't have Jesus, and it just, his world imploded, and then there was adultery and divorce over the next couple years, but the Lord used that to move my mom and my sister, who's four years younger than us, they moved to Washington, D.C., uh, and our junior year in college. Now, my junior year in college, I'm studying abroad in South America, and so I had to go to Chile, uh, had to get my first bar, uh, job, and I got a job bartending. I was just living a very Epicurean, pleasure-centered life, working hard, making great grades, you know, but very worldly. My mom moves to D.C. while I'm studying abroad, and she becomes a Christian, and she moves into a house on Capitol Hill that's one block from this church, Capitol Hill Baptist Church, and she goes to that church, uh, and she keeps going over my senior year. I come, Jason and I come back from studying abroad. We graduate from Georgetown, you know, get honors, get the big job offer with the big consulting firm. You know, I'm still waiting tables, bartending in Georgetown, making $300 cash a night, just living a very pleasure-centered, work hard, play hard, worldly life. Graduation day, May 97, my mom is standing there at, on the campus of our university, and next Sunday is Mother's Day, and she says, hey, Ryan, for my Mother's Day gift, I want you to come to church with me. And so I think, encourage mom, free Mother's Day gift. It's a no-brainer, right? Let's go to church. So the Sunday after graduation from college, Mother's Day 1997, I walked into Capitol Hill Baptist Church. And uh, two things struck me about that church. Number one, it was a weird church. 
and the way that they loved my mom and the way that they loved me and the way that they loved one another, I had never seen people act like that before. It was weird, but in a compelling, attractive way. That was weird thing number one. Weird thing number two was Mark Dever, the man who was preaching most of the sermons on, on Sunday morning. Mark was, was just a fascination to me. And in my rationalistic worldview, he was a, a false dichotomy because he was articulate, intelligent, had a PhD from Cambridge, but he was a Southern Baptist, fundamentalist, evangelical preacher. And in my worldview, those two things didn't go together. You know, an evangelical who's intelligent and articulate, a fundamentalist Baptist pastor who's, who's actually engaging and thoughtful, I just, it was like a false dichotomy. And so my mom said, hey, Ryan, don't you think before you reject Christianity, you should understand what you're rejecting? And I said, well, that makes sense. What better person to study with than Mark? So Mark and I started going through the Gospels and the Bible. That man met with me once a week for eight months, and we just studied the Scriptures because I had so many questions, uh, and I thought I had so many answers. Um, but over those eight, eight months, I was meeting with Mark, studying the Gospel, but it wasn't Mark who was primarily the instrument that the Lord used. It was it was studying the scriptures against the backdrop of that corporate witness of that church, weekly going there on Sundays and during the week, just them kind of pursuing me in love, but just pursuing me and loving me and seeing their love and their purity and their unity that the Lord used to convert me in February of 1998. And then I was baptized and I became a member of the church about three months later. I mean, I was, I was living with my girlfriend. I was just very, it took like just the big clunky sins, just getting rid of those. And then I was baptized in the church. I mean, I walked into Mark Dever's office because uh, his, his study is right there on the same property as the church. And it's kind of like a little village there on Capitol Hill. And I walked into his study on Friday night. My first Friday night as a brand new Christian, I said, Mark, um, what do Christians do on Friday nights? Because I knew what I used to do. And I was like, I can't do that. You know, I, mean, I, I, I literally quit my job bartending that, that, that week. I was like, I had no idea what to do because I wasn't raised in a Christian home. And I definitely didn't have, you know, a lot of Christian influence uh, growing up. So, but, you know, Aaron Minikoff was at the table that night studying with Mark. He was just getting ready for Sunday school. He and I took a walk around the block, and he started discipling me that week. I joined Andy Johnson's small group, and Andy mentored me every week. Matt Schmucker uh, discipled me. Mark Katzevin. That, that church, that same church, which was the best evangelism program, kind of leading me to Christ, then also became the best discipleship program for kind of walking with me and showing what it meant to walk in a manner worthy of Jesus. And I remember that, that, that first conversation when I, when I sat with Mark, he said to me, the first, when I made a profession of faith, he said to me, these are the first words out of his mouth. Well, he prayed with me, he rejoiced that, that there was a big hug, and then first words alone, some staff came in, they prayed with me too because I was at the church. He says to me, he said, now Ryan, the decision to follow Jesus is an urgent one. Your soul depends upon it. That was the first thing he said to me. The second thing he said is, following Jesus is costly. Count the cost. And then number three, he said, following Jesus, it's worth it. You will find no greater joy or satisfaction in this world or the next. And at first, it was like those things, I remember like it was yesterday, it was jolting. I was like, whoa, straight for the jugular. You know, he just like, he said, he's like basically calling my, my faith into question because he said, time will tell. And he, you know, he was explaining to me, repentance, count the cost. You know, do you understand what you're doing? Now, he did it with joy. It's worth it. But it was so helpful that he just said, count the cost time will tell. And then he kind of, I was immersed into a church that really helped me figure out, do I believe what I am now professing? And have I counted the cost? And uh, by God's grace, um, you know, 44 years, I'm, I'm now 44 years old. That's 23 years ago. Uh, I'm now married with five kids. 
uh, by God's grace, I have been able to walk faithfully in the Lord. And it, that, that, that same church that helped me, well, led me to Jesus and then helped me figure out what it meant to be a Christian, I need those people just as much now as I did that first week. I remember, uh, you know, as I became a Christian, I started reading my Bible. I remember reading 1 Peter 2, 11, 12, right? To live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, wait, that was me. They, they see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us, right? And that's just Peter. What, what, what's, where's Peter get that, that from? He's just getting that from Jesus. In Matthew, you know, in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, y'all, again, it's in the Greek plural, y'all, be, be light, be, be salt, be, be a city on the hill, that they may see your good deeds and glorify my Father in heaven. You see, when I was reading those verses, I realized that the church is to be a display of God's glory, of his love, of his purity, of his unity. And it is his main means to make disciples. So you see how this is all getting connected here, right? This vision of the church from authority, from, from the Great Commission, from making disciples. I love being the father of five kids. I have three boys. I'm sorry, three girls. I have three girls, two boys. Their ages are, well, I'm going to give all you, ages 7 to 19. I got one in elementary, middle school, high school, and college. We run a full zone defense in my house. It's great. We love it. It's crazy. But often I'll look at my kids and I'll think, Oh my goodness, these joyful bundles of iniquity. Do I have enough time? In the 18 years that the Lord's entrusted to me, do I have enough time to teach them everything that they need to live and survive wisely in this world? My oldest, 19, she's just starting her second year of college. She just made a profession of faith over the spring, and it seems uh, over the summer that she's made some hard decisions that give evidence to that repentance. I am so encouraged by what I see, but I am still terrified. And she's 19. Oh, does she have the wisdom and the maturity to just continue walking, even just in a basic faithful level? Well, you see, I think making disciples, it's a lot like raising children. You know, it's a process of growth. It demands time. It demands patience. It demands teaching. It demands a family. Friends, raising children, making disciples, it is glorious, hard, inefficient, hard, joyful, happy, hard work. But if we do it well, it has the potential by God's grace to bear great gospel fruit. And God has created the church to be his family, the, the original ecosystem by which this growth happens for making disciples. Beloved, in this present evil age, life is war. Satan is warring for your souls. He's warring for the souls of my children and the souls of your children and your family. He's warring for the souls of your neighbors, of your friends, of your co-workers. But as believers in Christ, we know the end of the story, right? God wins. Revelation tells us it promises us that we will see God face to face and we will walk with him once again like we did in the garden. But until then, in these last days, the church is the means by which that gospel is to be protected and promoted and guarded and put on display. And there is no 
more powerful weapon in the army of the Lamb than a healthy church. If we can unlock the power of the church, there is no better means to fulfill the Great Commission, right? God's word is proclaimed from pulpits just like this. It is proclaimed and it reverberates out into the pulpits, into the, into the hearts and the bodies and the minds of all the believers there. And then that church gathered then scatters and it goes out those doors into the neighborhoods and into the workplaces, into the families, acting like salt and light in a dark world. Oh, beloved, this is true power. And it's why a biblical vision of the church is so important. 1 John 1 is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. And verse 7, I think, particularly captures the relationship of the gospel and the church. John writes, But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Friends, do you, do you see the connection? The, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from our sins, and we have genuine, joy-filled fellowship with God and with one another if we walk in the light. That is, if we repent of our sins and believe in Jesus Christ. That is a beautiful picture, right? What is the church? A blood-bought, supernatural community that grounds us in real relationship, first with the Creator and then with one another. But unfortunately, this is not everyone's experience in the church. I think in America, even among a Christian evangelicalism, the local church is often at best just assumed, but usually forgotten as a central part of the Christian life and discipleship. So for example, college students don't usually go to church because honestly, the parachurch ministries are better and more fruitful for their individual discipleship. And after college, we get them too busy, we weren't never taught the importance of the local church for our own discipleship. It's honestly not really a good church in our neighborhood anyway. And so we find better ways to grow a minister or more often than not, our faith grows lukewarm or even cold. But the Bible, especially the New Testament, I think paints a very different picture of the church than this. Of course, everything I'm saying is pointless unless it's grounded in Scripture. I'm hoping that you're seeing this vision from scripture but let me give you just one more snapshot a kind of an up close personal snapshot view of this vision from uh, scripture from ephesians 3 10. Uh, it's a great verse that captures this vision of the church and it's paul's letter to the ephesians it is an astounding the whole letter is an astounding portrait of god's new society as believers are, are built up together as non-believers are, are converted god kind of creates this new society through the gospel of jesus christ it's a beautiful picture of reconciliation vertically as God reconciles us to himself and then horizontally as he destroys hostilities and, so, and barriers of, of race and ethnicity to bring together Jew and Gentile in a way that was never even imagined, much less seen before through the power of the gospel. It's a supernatural construction. And, and here's what Paul kind of, it culminates all in verse 10 of chapter 3. And I'll start at verse 8 to read for a couple of verses of context. But Paul writes, Ephesians 3, verse 8. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Here it is, verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Okay, that phrase, through the church, that is an amazing phrase. 
That's the last thing I would expect to see here. My kids, they love this thing called Mad Libs, where you kind of fill in, fill in the blank, right? And it's pretty funny. And if we were playing Mad Libs, God's going to display his manifold wisdom and power and glory through, I would never put the church. You know, I'd put something, honestly, like creation, like being here in the Pacific Northwest. It's, we did a hike yesterday. It's like seeing creation on high-definition surround sound. You know, it was just beautiful. And of course, I think in some ways, like that hike yesterday, that is reflecting the glory and goodness of God in creation. But here in this verse, it says that God has chosen the church to display his manifold wisdom to the powers in the heavenly places. That means he's chosen fallen and simple people like me and like you to display his wisdom to the world, to the heavenly places, beyond the world. That is amazing. And the goal of all that is right there in verse 20 and 21 of chapter 3, to give glory to God the Father in Christ and Jesus Christ and in the church throughout all generations. Let me just read these verses. Ephesians 3, verse 20 and 21. This is what Paul writes. It's like the, the grand finale here. He says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory. There it is. In the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, do you see the significance of this? What is the church? It is an outpost of heaven, according to Paul. It is the dwelling place of God. This means that we, the church of King Jesus, we are an embassy for the kingdom of God. That means that we are ambassadors representing King Jesus here on earth. So I love working in Washington, D.C. I love it and hate it in many ways. But I do love being in Washington, D.C., you have to be called to live in that city long term, and I think the Lord has called me. But it is, it is a beautiful city. Most every country in that world, almost every country in that world has an embassy or a consulate there. Uh, it has a great history, great architecture, lots of great museums. It's a beautiful city, but it is a temporal city. Everything about that city is focused on the kingdom of man. And in some ways, it's the one, if not the, one of the political centers of the kingdom of man. Now, every day, Capitol Hill Baptist Church is five blocks from the U.S. Capitol. So I get, and our offices are right there. So I get to see the U.S. Capitol every day when I walk into work. I see the, the, the Supreme Court, the Library of Congress. I'm thankful that I know members who work in all of those buildings. Uh, but I'm even more thankful that I had the privilege to walk into the one embassy in town, the church, whose kingdom will not fall, whose king is not marred by corruption, whose economy will not fail, whose treasury will not falter. We all, beloved, serve this king, immortal, invisible, God only wise. And we might be wrong about a certain political candidate and his political party, but we are certain about Jesus and his church. So our faith is not ultimately about us, our best life now. No, it's about us together living as a display of his glory. And don't you see, healthy churches are the best domestic policy out there for this country. It's the best foreign policy out there for this country and for every country. And it's God's vision. It's not Ryan Townsend's or Mark Devers or Nine Marks or Sam's. This is God's vision for our good and his glory. And what's the result? Well, you see in Ephesians 4, Ephesians 5, it results in disciples who walk in a manner worthy of Jesus. That's the rest of Ephesians. All right, sorry, I've gone long. Let me finish this thing. What does this all mean, practically, for us? Well, for Nine Marks, for, for Restoration uh, Road Church, 
for y'all as the elders and the pastors, for y'all as church members. What does this mean? Well, this means very simply that a core part of our mission is to help churches and church leaders so that they can build healthy churches for our good and God's glory. There's a lot I could say there, but let me just give one point of application. Prayer. For Restoration Road Church and for all of us, know that prayer is the foundation and the fuel for all of this, this vision that, Lord willing, you've seen from Scripture. That's the kind of church and church culture you want. And that's what precisely comes through meetings just like this. I am so encouraged and grateful to God to see you saints gathering here on a Sunday night to pray for one another. That is the foundation and the fuel that will drive this vision of the church. All the work and resources and events of Nine Marks are in vain. They will do nothing without your prayers. And so let me encourage you, not just with this vision of the church, but also with the power of prayer to drive it. I promise I'm done. I'm just going to read one thing. I brought you all two books as a thank you gift, but also an encouragement, a book on prayer and a book on missions, because uh, we've written a lot of books. But uh, these two are directly connected to everything I've been talking about tonight, and they're really short. You can read these in under two hours. I know because I've done it, and I am not a big reader. But let me just conclude with this word, and then we'll have a little video, and then we're done. Uh, this is how John Onyechekwa concludes this book. He says, God's evangelistic strategy in the world is rooted in the local church. That's y'all. The local church gives a watching world a firsthand encounter of the love, forgiveness, mercy, and holiness of God. This is why we pray for other churches and pastors in our area during our gather gatherings. Thank you for doing that. We pray that God would cause these churches to thrive for his glory and that people would hear the gospel through them. We pray that God would raise up other pastors to continue this faithful gospel work, both locally and abroad. By praying together for repentance in our lives and in the lives of those who don't yet know Christ, we don't just do something with our discontentment. We do the right thing. We pray. The whole book is that good. Let me encourage you to grab a free copy from Nine Marks and enjoy it on the way out. Friend, let's pray that God allow us to raise up and prepare and equip and encourage church leaders in your region and the United States and around the world, that he may use Restoration Road to that end and Nine Marks. Let's pray that he can encourage you all to love and to serve, to equip and care for current missionaries and organizations, both local and global, that deal with the church. We call that thinking globally and acting locally, right? Pray for, uh, for Nine Marks. You know, our greatest measure of success is churches like you all that have a heart and a commitment to build other healthy churches, other compelling communities, and foster other healthy churches in their regions. This is the Pauline approach to the Great Commission that we see in the book of Acts. It's what we see throughout his New Testament letters as well. It's what I hear and see in y'all as I get to know this church better, as you all gather to pray corporately. You see, Nine Marks is not just a ministry of Mark Dever or CHBC. Please do not think of it that way. It is so much bigger than that. I'm grateful that we're not just about CHBC. We're about many churches and throughout the Pacific Northwest, the United States, and the world 
that have this desire and this role to foster other healthy churches for the great other healthy churches for the great commission so very simply we are praying that through the resources we create at nine marks and the events that we host and the partners that we have like y'all both in the united states and around the world god will build healthy churches among the nations to be a display of his glory that is what the new testament and the bible is about and i pray that is what we are about at nine marks and as ministers and partners in the gospel. I'm gonna show a video now, it's very brief, uh, uh, a video about, that highlights some of our partnership with you and with the churches around the world as we seek to do this internationally, and then we are done. We'll come up and pray after this.